Good morning, family. My name is Brandon Worth. I'm one of the elders here. It is my joy to be with you this morning. Um, I am so excited to get to read through this psalm with you today. And again, thank you, Ben. Thank you, Kyleo, for just preparing our hearts and letting us just be like washed by Psalm 2 already, that we got to spend that time together and that you would prepare for that. Thank you. Um, we have been looking forward to this season, for this Advent season as a church for almost a year. Um, at Andrew and I are going to be teaching through this, this uh, series and it's crazy that this is our, that we're, they're here right now. Um, it feels like we decided that like four weeks ago. And so, oh man, okay, here we go. Um, but I love Advent. I'm not as Christmassy as Sarah. I have a very strong rule that you cannot listen to Christmas music until Friday, that we could not get decorations out until Friday, uh, which is really sad. My family is super sick right now, but my wife just wants to decorate so bad. So all the strength we could muster was to get the boxes out. And then of course, if you leave these boxes out, our three children just like absolutely destroyed our house. It just looks like Christmas exploded in our house right now. There's just like cheap Advent chocolates everywhere and books and uh, they really liked having the stockings, using those as like socks and trying to hop around as those. I thought that was the most creative thing ever. Um, but I love Advent. I love Christmas. And Dawson got to help us prepare for this too. Um, can anyone tell me what the word Advent means? What was that for the back? So the people in the back can hear you? Arrival, yeah, mm -hmm. arrival or coming. So Advent, we celebrate Advent, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ, that this Messiah that is proclaimed in this Messianic Psalm in Psalm two has come, that the Messiah has come, this Advent, this arrival, this coming of the Savior is here. And so we oftentimes relate Advent to maybe two emotions or two feelings, and that's joy and longing. There's kind of this marriage that happens, especially in the Advent season, of joy and longing. And it's joy because, as we got to celebrate in worship this morning, uh, we have a Messiah. That Messiah came to earth. Jesus Christ was born a beautiful baby boy right there inside the O. Um, and he was born. He came to earth. He dwelt amongst us. He was with us. So we celebrate. We rejoice. And during Advent, we have this sense of longing, right? We long now for the second Advent, the second coming, that we go, wow, Jesus came, and yet we still experience brokenness. We experience brokenness in this world. We experience brokenness in our relationships, brokenness in our own bodies. And as Paul would say in Romans, all creation groans. We continue to groan and long and say, Jesus, please fix what is broken. There is still brokenness here. And we long for your second advent. Please come and finish what you have started. So we have this mixture, right? Joy and longing. And that's what this sermon series is really all about. We're calling it Joy of Every Longing Heart, which you probably heard in that song um, 
come thou long expected Jesus, the, the verse that says, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. So, as people, we will have a constant companion in life called longing. We will be people that long on this side of eternity. That it will be a constant for us is longing. Going, Jesus, please fix. I'm experiencing brokenness. Please fix. Please restore. Please come. And we are called as God's people to be a people that rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. We are commanded to practice joy. And so the big question that I want you to hear today and through this sermon series really is, how can we experience joy in the midst of longing? How can we, as God's people, experience joy in the midst of our longing? That we would turn and be known for our joy. That we would turn towards the brokenness that we experience that stirs up that longing in our hearts. That we would turn towards our Savior and rejoice in the midst of all brokenness. And that's also why we're here in these Psalms and these messianic psalms, these psalms that foretell of a savior, is that they have this beautiful mixture too, that we kind of get to link arms with God's people through the ages by reading these psalms and say, we too have that mixture of joy and longing, just like the original readers of this text would have felt both the joy of hearing that there is going to be a king that is established by God and a longing that there are very real people, rulers, and kings that want to destroy God's people and just go against God's rule, there's this mix of joy and longing. So two ways, as we read, at least two ways that this psalm would help us today experience joy in the midst of longing are these two things. One, we remember that God laughs. We practice, we remind ourselves that God laughs, that the opposition, that God's response to the opposition is actually laughter. It's inconsequential to him. We remember that as a people, as God's people. And the second thing is we rejoice in his established king. We rejoice that God established a king on Zion, on his holy hill. We have reason to celebrate. We have reason to rejoice. Let me pray and then we'll get into this. Jesus, we are a people stuck in that already, not yet reality. I praise you. I was overwhelmed through the music this morning because they're getting to worship you that you have come. Joy has dawned through you, Jesus Christ, through your advent, your coming, your arrival. We praise you and we thank you. And God, I know that there is still that longing in our hearts 
that in this Advent season, in the Christmas season, that often we are told through Hallmark movies and Christmas cards and the works that we should feel really happy, we should feel really joyful. Um, And that is not the reality. And we can often feel even worse because we are not feeling that. Because we think we should be feeling that and we can't. And Jesus, that is not possible unless we understand who our God is and the control and authority you have over creation. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would open our hearts this morning to this text, that you would make your word, your gospel, your truth clear through this passage. I just ask that you would be proclaimed, you would be made much of. We need you, Jesus. It's in your precious name. Amen. So to say it again, the two things we're talking about today, how can we experience joy in the midst of longing? Two things in this psalm. Remember that God laughs, and two, rejoice in his established king. So first one, remember that God laughs. At the beginning of Psalm 2, we see this question. Most likely David, the psalmist, says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I get this picture as I read these first three verses of like a supervillain convention. There's like just all of these people, these kings and rulers, getting together. They've got their little lanyards on. They're going to break out sessions on how they can rage even harder against the authority. Uh, I I picture like DC supervillains because Marvel villains are super lame. But so these DC supervillains are all meeting up. And I, I go back to like Saturday morning cartoons even, where the villains always over-communicate their motivation, right? Because they're like, I don't know, I don't know why they do it, but they're always like, we have to get Batman because Batman's the only good superhero that DC has. And they're like, we have to get Batman because he, he, like, we can't do crime. We can't take all the pigeons and get them out of Gotham or whatever their plan is um, because he rules the night. Like, all of our plans keep getting thwarted because Batman is an authority. He has power over the streets of Gotham. And so they need to take that power away. They need Batman to be powerless, right? And we see that, a sense of that, it's not a perfect metaphor by any means, my super villain convention metaphor, but we see that the people plot in vain. And David even, right out, he buries the lead right at the beginning. This is in vain. Why do these villains do this? Why do the people, these kings and rulers, plot against God? How in the world could they possibly take authority or power away from God? Why do they plot in vain? But yet, they do. And we see, as this convention's going, God's response. We're gonna take a few minutes right here What is God's response in Psalm 2, verse 4? It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. We're going to take this word by word for a minute. 
we see that God sits. God sits in heaven and laughs. So God is sitting. That is the verb to care about right here, is that he is not pacing back and forth. That when these kings and rulers attempt in vain to go against his power and authority, he sits. I picture in those movies too, you have like, uh, you know, the, the whatever ruler, whatever king is in like a war room and there's a big map on a table and probably like daggers stuck in the corners to hold it down and a whole bunch of wood pieces and they're like moving these wood pieces throughout this map, right? They're planning, they've got this plan A, B, and C of, of what could happen and how they're gonna respond. That is not our God, that is not our Father. Our God sits. He, that is to say, he is peaceful. He experiences peace in the midst of people plotting against him and his anointed, him and his people. He sits. He is not anxious. Then he sits enthroned in heaven. Enthroned in heaven. A throne is this symbol. If you wanted to take over Tacoma, you would, you'd probably have to do more than this now, but say Tacoma way back in the day. You would occupy this space and you would set a throne in it and you would sit on it. And that symbol would say, I am in authority over this city. I have a throne here, I'm sitting in it. I have dominion over this city. And where does God sit? He sits enthroned in heaven. And what that tells us is that he is in ultimate authority over all creation. There is not an atom or a molecule or a kingdom that he does not have power over, that he does not have dominion over. God sits enthroned in heaven. And next, he sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs. He finds it humorous, which is to say he finds their attempts inconsequential. He is the very opposite of anxious. God is not afraid of the opposition of man or even concerned by it. He laughs at it. One commentary says this, God's laughter reminds his enemies that they will be broken and reminds his friends that we will overcome our enemies with him. And not just that his son will crush the serpent for us, but that he will call his people down from the rafters, from the bleachers, onto the field, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath our feet. God's laughter reminds his enemies that while he may be treating them with great patience now, soon enough his wrath will be quickly kindled and it will be terrible to oppose him. And his laughter reminds his sons and his daughters of their happiness. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I wanted to spend this time and walk through each of those words because I think as a body at Soma Tacoma, we need to hear this. And I think as God's people in the Western church, in this world that we live in, we need to hear that we serve a God who sits enthroned in heaven 
and laughs. I see a lot of anxiety and fear among us. I see that myself. God has been so faithful these past few weeks as I've been studying this to show me and to remind me of his posture and to calm my spirit when I wake up, roll over, grab my phone, and scroll through the news for 30 minutes. To be honest, last week I think I spent an hour one morning and I set my phone down and I was like, why in the world did I just do that? Like, what did I gain from that? I have only gained a pit in my stomach because of that. Like, that is all I've gained. Why did I just spend an hour on this? And I want to encourage us, this word for us this morning, that we remember, we remind ourselves of God and where he sits enthroned in heaven, and how he responds to the rulers of this world, to the people that plot against him and his anointed. And that word anointed is actually really cool in here. Uh, in Hebrew, that's translated to Messiah, and in Greek, that's translated to Christ. So they're plotting against the Lord and his Christ. You can see where I'm going in the sermon already. <laughs> To belabor the point even a little further, I really wanna do an exercise or to, to practice this for a second. And so please try and picture this, like close your eyes if you have to. Imagine that you are a child and that you are with your father, that you are with a good father, you are with God the Father, and you're out with your father and while walking down a street, a group surround you. And this group obviously has been scheming to harm you, has been plotting your demise. And in that spot as a child, you are feeling fear and anxiety. You are asking a thousand questions. You are reaching for control in some way. How can we get out of this? What are we gonna do? How do we fix this? And in that turmoil you're feeling, you stop and you hear your father laugh. You hear your father let out a belly laugh. And that laugh, family, means two very different things. To the robbers, to the people that wish you harm, that laugh says, oh no, I'm not the one putting people in danger, I'm in danger. It, give, it provides fear to them. I'm not making these people feel afraid and unsafe. I'm unsafe, I'm in trouble. And to us, to the child, that communicates, hearing that laugh is a perfect comfort. It says, my father has this. My father is powerful. My father is not concerned about this. My father will protect me. He will keep me safe. I am in the presence of my father. I do not have to fear. So we remember that God sits enthroned 
in heaven and he laughs. And I would challenge you this week as inevitably something comes up in this Advent season, this longing, this anxiousness, any fear to remind yourself to physically remember that idea as much as you can. Say, God, please remind me you sit enthroned in heaven and you laugh. That is your response. I am safe because you have authority over everything. You are in full dominion and power. So God sits, he's not pacing, he's at complete rest. He sits enthroned in heaven, he has authority over every cell and atom, every kingdom, and he laughs. He is not concerned with the plotting and scheming of man, he is concerned for his people. Second point, we rejoice in his established king. So as you see, we get to hear the people, uh, their response. It says in verse three, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, which is to say, let's get out from under the authority of God. How do we get out from under this? How can we be God? How can we be the ones in power? That's what they say. And then in verse six, there's this coupling that's happening in this psalm that this is a poem we see God's response and then he gets to verbally respond as well. He's like, oh, that's what you're saying? Well, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then through the psalmist, he says, says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I love that passage because I have to be careful here because it explodes into like a hundred different sermons and I have to, <laughs> I want to stay on track, keep this on the rails. But what a beautiful phrase that we hear throughout scripture, that we hear him say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. We see that in the gospels, that the father says that over Jesus. After he was baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water, the clouds part, a dove descends, and we see God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. We see that throughout the gospels. The father affirms his king, this Messiah. We also see that before this psalm in 2 Samuel 7, 14, it says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. And there's actually kind of a a duality happening here, which we're going to get to a second. But in Psalm 2, we have that phrase, and we also get a little extra. We get this word today. When is this going to happen? When will this event take place? When will this advent, this coming, take place? Today. And so what day is today? I know a lot of us are probably asking that after this Thanksgiving time. What day is today in this psalm? Well, there's actually kind of two todays, if you will. And this gets like inception a little bit, but there's two todays. The first one, if we were there with the original readers of this, we would see two todays. The first is that this psalm is in the middle of a coronation. It's in the middle of David being crowned as king. This psalm is a reminder to God's people that he like he promised to Abraham and his descendants that he will bring his final kingdom to earth through the line of David. 
And David is a placeholder. He's like a lower case M Messiah, right? That he is a foretaste. That David lines up with some of what we read here in this psalm. And then quickly we realize that this psalm is actually speaking of shoes much too big for David to fill. That he can, partially, he can, he can stand in these things. That God would bring him to this today, this coronation, and establish him as a king over God's people. But that also we see immediately, um, let's see, it says in verse eight, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That David is not reaching to the ends of the earth. That is a coming Messiah. David was here to be a king of Jerusalem. And there's a second today. And that second today now is Easter Sunday. And how do we get that? We get that from Acts 13, where Paul says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. We also see Paul in his introduction to the Roman church in Romans 1, he says, regarding his son, Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, he was a part of this Davidic line, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed to the son of God in power by what? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus' coronation day, Jesus is established as our king through his resurrection. And so we get to see here that this today I have begotten you speaks of Jesus Christ our king. And you may be asking, and it's a very super valid question, well, hasn't Jesus always been the father's son, like why is it today I have begotten you to Jesus? Like Jesus is there, He's, he is his son. And that phrase today I have begotten you is actually a, a kingly phrase more than a relational phrase. By that I mean we would say um, begotten is not a birthing. Begotten is, um, is this kingly term saying they have taken the throne. And same with son, and son is not this relational term, it's again a kingly term. Um, when the inheritance is passed, it, it speaks of the inheritance being passed to the next king, that he is called a new son begotten to the throne. So it is saying that God is now establishing Christ today as our Messiah, as our king. That was out in the weeds, but are we still tracking? Okay. <laughs> So, today we have a king. Today we have a Messiah. Today we rejoice. That as we see in Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I want to challenge us today. I think joy can be this kind of fuzzy thing for us. So we're like, it's not happiness. It's something that's bigger than happiness. It's how do we, but it's just, it kind of just happens. It, it can get super confusing, like trying to like muster up joy, like feel joy about this. But I do believe that joy is a practice. Joy, rejoicing is a spiritual discipline. 
So as an elder team, we, through the summer, read through this book called The Other Half of Church, um, which I really enjoyed. And it talks about how as Christians, we can sometimes have a more left-brained way of experiencing God, that that's a lot of the memorization and sit with your butts in seats and listen to something, but that we um, have also missed this other side, this joy, these other components, this hased love of God. And so in this chapter about joy, um, they were talking about how we can practice joy in relationship to one another, how we do that with the Father, and how we do that uh, vertically, but also how we do that horizontally with one another. And they were giving some examples, and one that just stuck with me to drive this point home is they said, um, this, one of the authors says that every night he and his wife stare at each other and smile. And that freaks me out. I'm like, I, can't, I, that, I don't know. I'm sure it's doing some like really cool rewiring and getting some joy synapses firing. That's not the part I'm talking about, but they, they do that. They stare and smile at each other. And then the second piece is they say to one another three things about the other that brought them joy that day. And that hit me um, because it made me go, yeah, that's actually something I have to practice. I have to choose to find and experience joy in my spouse. I have to choose to experience joy in a friend. And we see in James, I love that he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when facing trials of various kinds. Consider it. To consider means to make a choice about something. You're choosing to consider, what am I gonna do with this trial? I'm going to count it as pure joy. We have to practice joy as a family. And so then, that's horizontally. Also, vertically, rejoicing is a spiritual discipline in our relationship with God. Like a couple or friends that are quick to share with one another something that they do that brings the other joy, so we in our relationship with God get to reflect back his character to him, get to rejoice in who he is. We read scripture and we ask the Holy Spirit to show us the joy of God's truth in it. We experience in community with one another, and this is a place I'd love to see us grow in as a family, is that it would be commonplace in our family to share the joys that we've experienced in Christ. That that would be a common conversation that we have with one another. Like, can you believe that this is what God is doing? I got, I experienced so much joy through the Father this week. He revealed this to me in scripture. And in praying with him, he revealed this to me. I, I was overwhelmed. I, was re, I rejoiced that that would be a conversation that we get to have with one another in community, is that we would be a people that rejoice. And we rejoice today because we have a Messiah that understands. Jesus experienced both joy and longing. I think of the, the verse in Hebrews that says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then what did he do? He sat down, he sits 
at the right hand of the throne of God. That with the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, the shame of our sin that was on his shoulders. He faced that, considering it joy, that joy and longing that we see even in our Messiah. Consider it pure joy. So we remember that God is a God who laughs. And secondly, we rejoice in his Messiah. We rejoice in this Savior who has experienced this joy and longing much like us. And this psalm ends um, beautifully by saying, and I love that we got to just hear this over and over again in, that, in the song version of Psalm 2, that blessed are all who take refuge in him. And we're blessed too because we get to live in light of the first advent. A savior has come, a savior that faced the wrath and took our shame. I'm starting to close here. In Romans 5, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. This is a weighty psalm. We see in this psalm a God who is laughing at opposition who apparently has a rod and is using this, is wielding this. He's breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing to pieces like a potter's vessel. We serve this God and we have. Uh, so as we read this psalm, there's a weightiness here. And I think that weightiness comes down to how we hear that laugh. How do you hear that laugh today? Like we talked, there's, there's two ways that people will hear that laugh. And that's why I went to Romans 5, is to know that if you're feeling that sense of rebellion, or you're going, oh no, am I the one who will be smashed in pieces like a potter's vessel? Am I at that supervillain convention? Is that me? And how am I at that supervillain convention? Did I sneak in the back door and attend some of those ceremonies or some of those um, keynote speeches on how I can rebel, how I can have authority and power over my own life. I want to ask us, will you hear that laugh from a place of rebellion or a place of rejoicing? But we get to trust at just as the psalm ends, there's this motion to this psalm of the very real response of a holy God, and then a recommendation in verses 10 through 12. He's saying, respond to my holiness. Respond to this wrath that I am making known to you. Respond to it, and 
I ask you, it's saying, kiss the son and blessed are all who take refuge in him. So if you're feeling that, let me read Romans 5 again because I jumped the gun and read that too early. Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in his power, his rule, his dominion, his glory, and we experience joy and hope in it. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ and his coronation on the cross, then you are justified through faith. You have peace with God and you stand in grace. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Rejoice in his refuge, rejoice in his salvation. In the midst of your longing, rejoice. And if you don't yet know Jesus, today's the day. (laughs) Trade in that rebellion for rejoicing. Put your trust in a Messiah, in a king, and a God that keeps his promises. Because Jesus is a good king. And if we read on in Romans 5, we see it says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, because that's the truth of us, right? All of these people, all these kings and rulers are powerless in comparison to God. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse eight says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, while we were still at the supervillain convention, Christ died for us. What do you hear when you hear God's laugh? It is my hope and prayer that we in this Advent season would experience joy in the midst of longing, that we would remember a God who sits enthroned in heaven and laughs, that we would practice joy, that we would engage in the spiritual discipline of rejoicing in a Messiah who has come. Uh, Band, you can come up. Um, Two questions. We're going to take just a couple minutes um, to respond, to sit with this psalm some more. And there will be questions on the screen, but like we've discussed, what do you hear when you hear God's laugh? Pray that through with him. God, what do I hear? And also, how does God want you to rejoice in this season? How does God want you to practice rejoicing in this season? And then, is there any place in your heart, is there any place in your life where, you, where God is calling you, where the Holy Spirit is calling you to replace, to trade rebellion for rejoicing? After that time of response, we'll go to the tables in communion. Let me read this passage. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's go to the table in a minute. Dawson will tell you when it's time after our response. Let's go to the table rejoicing and proclaiming a Jesus whose blood was shed, whose body was broken on our behalf, that this king who rules on Zion came down and he died. He, with joy, endured the cross. He scorned the shame and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you that you are a good God, that God, you are a good Father, that we can experience joy through your laughter, through the anger that you feel in your holiness, because that anger for those that are in Christ Jesus get to experience that as a comfort and as a safety that we have a Father that will protect, that is not moved. His plans are not changed by the rulers and the people of this world. Your plans to rescue and redeem and adopt cannot be thwarted by by these people, by kings, by rulers, by us. So we look to you today. We remember who you are, God, and we rejoice that you are our Messiah, and that we get to engage in your first advent, your advent of coming and being here and dwelling with us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your precious name. Amen.